welcome to Track. Track? Hey y'all, I'm Bailey. And I'm Nathan. And you're listening to Track Talk. This week we are starting a brand new series, our Decade series, in which we go through every decade starting with the 1950s and talk about the music of that era. I think it's going to be a really exciting series. Bailey's dad actually recommended this, and it's another one of those series that's going to force me out of my comfort zone and what I normally listen to. Bailey, I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but not many of my playlists are filled with music from the 50s. What? I know, but now they are. (laughs) I I really enjoyed this. I had a lot of memories of music from the 50s, not that I was around at that time, but but my family was really into that kind of music. And so I think that it brought back a lot of memories, and I was very charmed. 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 It was fun to take a little dive into history. Um, I think I mentioned this when we were previewing this series in the last episode, but something that I always felt like I missed in history classes was the ability to empathize with periods of history and how people experienced those. You know, like I never really stopped and considered that somebody's 1952 is my 2015. You know, like that was as far as it had come. That was the new stuff that was happening. That was contemporary music at one point (laughs) for somebody. That was what the, what the kids were listening to. And I really feel like it's valuable to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, even for something like this, some kind of pop culture phenomenon. Uh, and, and see how people experienced the modern world back when it was modern. Sure. Totally. It'll be weird someday when, you know, our grandkids are like talking about the classics and listening to the songs that we listen to today. <laughs> Pitbull is going to be somebody else's uh, Dean Martin. Oh, God. That's horrifying. Um. Well, okay. To start off, I thought that we would just go through a little bit of background on the 1950s and just kind of get a general sense of what was happening in that decade. Okay. Yeah. What do you got for us? Okay. So the 1950s is known as the silent generation, which is pretty harsh, but... um, Well, especially because we're talking about the music that they made during that time. (laughs) That's true. Uh, But it is a very positive thing. It was about peace after World War II and like experiencing that collective sigh of relief Mm -hmm. after all of the time of war was over. Although there was a lot of fear of Cold War and atomic bombs and things like that. This would probably be a good time to just say that. I mean, we're talking about 1950s America. I guess we were never explicit about that. Well, yeah. You can tell from our lovely American accents. So, yeah, there was um, there were like the duck and cover drills going on at schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, people were very afraid that nuclear war was going to happen at the time. Um, and I think that that has kind of permeated still into our society today. Like, the 1950s really affected our lives today, because we still have that those leftover fears of Russia and nuclear war and things like that. I think that that's still very prevalent today. I think that's a good point. But also the space race was happening. It was at the very beginning of the space race when Sputnik was launched. There was a lot of explosive artwork in that time period with Jackson Pollock and Rothko and things like that. And then it was the celebrities of the time were people like James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, those like movie rebel kind of people. Uh Uh-huh. Glitz and glam. As far as the literary scene, uh, the beat poets were really big in the 50s and and also jazz. And it was also the start of the civil rights movement um, with the Montgomery bus boycott. Wow, there's a lot going on then. So what kind of music can we expect out of this decade? Music by Elvis, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry, Ella Fitzgerald, all that shit. The big four. 
the, the big four, I guess. <laughs> so when you say that you used to listen to a lot of 50s music with your family, what did you used to listen to? Was it a lot of Elvis and Buddy Holly? Well, I guess it wasn't necessarily listening to it, but my family would always sing it and whistle it. And my grandma would always sing the Andrews Sisters. My dad sang 16 tons at night before I went to bed. Little quaint things like that. Interesting. So you got modern day adaptations. You got the covers. What was your experience with 1950s music? Um, well, I used to listen to a lot of Elvis as a kid. I liked his movies. Um, I'm blanking on the names of any of them right now. I must have watched them so young, but I, I remember seeing him on the silver screen and, uh, I went to a musical about Buddy Holly that was really enjoyable. I guess it was really just Elvis and Buddy Holly and then, uh, just like Buddy Holly. Um, you know, in, in terms of jazz, uh, Louis Armstrong and Dizzy Gillespie, and uh, I really like Muddy Waters. I guess that's more blues than jazz. Uh, but really not that much. Like, I, I really haven't listened to a whole lot of it. So this was an enjoyable excursion back into the annals of music history to see what we could dredge up. And I really enjoyed what we found. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's delve right into it. Do you want to introduce the theory that we're going to be talking about today? Sure. We're going to start out with new criticism, which I think we've only talked about once, if I'm not mistaken. I think we talked about it with One Dance and Drake back in our original series. Back in the day. Back in the day, in the 50s. So, new criticism is seen by some as the most nitpicky, anal retentive, close, close reading theory. <laughs> anal retentive. <laughs> Sorry. I used I used annals and anal in the same two minute span. Yes, you did. And it made daily giggle. <laughs> so a lot of these literary critical theories are trying to figure out where we look for meaning in a text. Uh, you know, new historicism is going to say that we need to look to the author and the cultural context, and that's where the meaning is coming from through the people that shaped it. Reader response theory says that it's all in the reader. It's us as consumers, you know, listeners. Readers, viewers, however we're taking in the work, it's up to us to add meaning to the text, and that's where we find it. New Criticism says that we can forget the people who made it, we can forget the people who are reading it, it's just what's on the page or mm -hmm. in the song. It's the text itself. Everything you need to know is right there. You don't need any kind of special education or background context to, to fully enjoy the work. Everyone can do it equally? Exactly. It started out as kind of a democratizing process where uh, these intellectuals were sad to see that the only people who were enjoying texts, especially the more highfalutin academic kind of texts like Shakespeare, they thought that that should be able to be appreciated by literally anyone, not just the ivory tower academic elites. They wanted to be able to bring literary appreciation to the masses, so they thought that you don't really have to know who Shakespeare was, or all of the the mythos surrounding that time and place that it was written in and the context. You just need to look at what's on the page. You have to have a basic understanding of the language itself, the genre and the form. Like I said uh, in, in the last episode, we talked about New Criticism. You can't treat Hamlet as a song. It's not a shitty song. It's a good play. Uh, so you have to kind of measure it for what it is in that sense. And just have a general understanding of the tropes and symbols of the genre or the society, but just in a very generalized sense. You don't have to get into the weeds. Right. Um, and the way that you do this, the way that you 
reach this literary appreciation from a no context perspective is by close reading. You just look really, really, really close at what's actually on the page. You forget about everything that's irrelevant and you look for uh, some specific literary devices like paradox and irony and ambiguity or tension. New criticism wanted to be a science. They wanted to be systematic and replicable, almost an algebra of literary interpretation, where you do A, and then you do B, and you solve for X. It's been a long time since I've done algebra. <laughs> a lot of letters there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, for instance, um, with tension, are you are you familiar with how the new critics want us to go after and, and identify tension in a text, Bailey? Vaguely, but why don't you tell me a little bit about it? Okay. So, one method or one equation for approaching literary criticism is to take the text, look at it, and find a tension in it. So, some kind of incompatible concept or a struggle or a, a problem, something that causes... Like a paradox? Not necessarily. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be an internal inconsistency in the logic, but something that drives the, the stakes of a work where, say, values are in conflict. So like in Romeo and Juliet, Romeo and Juliet want to be together, but there's tension because they can't. Because of their, the, the family dynamic. They're, they're not able to be together. And so that causes tension between what characters want and what they can have. So we look for the, we look for the tension. We identify the tension. We see how well it's developed and whether or not we're sucked into it, whether we're feeling compelled by it. And then we look for ultimately whether that tension is resolved into unity. So it doesn't mean that everything has to be sunshine and rainbows at the end, but it means that there has to be some kind of release of tension, some kind of conclusion to it. The tension is what makes it interesting, and the unity is what makes it satisfying and whole. Um, so that's just one example of a type of arithmetic that you can apply to a literary work in order to see whether or not it's good. Since you can't say, oh, it was good for the time, that doesn't matter. Or, I liked it, that also doesn't matter. Or, the author tried really hard, none of that matters. You're looking at whether that work, in and of itself, objectively, is good literature. If it did good wording. Okay, so what do new critics look at in order to study what makes something good? In general, they're just looking for literary devices. Things that we've shown, you know, going back to Aristotle's Poetics, to be compelling components of storytelling or description. So, like I mentioned, there's paradox and irony and the tension and imagery and symbolism and contradictions that are resolved. You, you look for a lot of these elements and then systematically go through each one and look at how it's conducted and what effect it has on the text as a whole. Yeah, like what it's made up of and how all of those things add up to make it a good thing. Correcto. Okay. And then finding out what it has and what it might be missing and maybe what it's missing intentionally. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, intention doesn't necessarily matter, but because I feel like intention implies authorial intent. Okay. Maybe not intentionally, but obviously what it's missing for a reason. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. I feel you. Well, thank you for that little intro to new criticism. Learn yourself something. <laughs> Let's start off just by 
diving right into the music of the 50s. Does that sound good? That sounds great. Okay. What do you have in mind? So, new criticism is very much about intrinsic features, right? What makes something good or bad. Mm-hmm. Inherently, right? It's all that matters. So, obviously, they talk about the death of the author, and we're just looking at the text alone. So, I'm kind of trying to figure out, personally, can we separate an Elvis song from Elvis the artist, the entertainer, the king? Is that a thing that we can really, truly do? Can you listen to an Elvis song and just appreciate it for its intrinsic properties? What's interesting to me that I didn't really realize until I started doing a bunch of research for this is that so many Elvis songs are covers. Like he, oh, totally, yeah. He hardly, I mean, he didn't write the songs, obviously, but he wasn't even the first person to record them. Just reappropriation, right? Yeah, I mean, well, which has such a negative connotation. He took something that didn't do very well, didn't get very much publicity or play on the charts, and added his own style and mm-hmm. and brought them to life through his persona and his fame and and injected life back into them. Uh, one, one of the examples, Hound Dog, is so iconically Elvis. Totally. I was going to talk about that, too. Should we play a little sample right now for the folks at home? Yeah. You ain't nothing but a hound dog That, to me, is the iconic Elvis song. But apparently, it it was a cover. He recorded that one in 1956, and it was originally done by Willie Mae Big Mama Thornton. Yep. In 1952, so four years earlier. And it had gotten a little bit of airplay, but not much. Kind of was dying off, and then Elvis was like, hey, I'll bring it back. And it was totally overshadowed by Elvis. Absolutely. She she really has not gotten any credit for it. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, that song is in so many movies. Did you know that? It really is, yeah. I saw a list of it. It was like 10 or something like that. So many. A lot, But like all of them were very iconic movies, like uh-huh. Forrest Gump and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what is also interesting about that that I didn't realize is that Hound Dog is slang, or was slang, 50s slang, for a man who stays with a woman so that she can support him financially. So kind of just a loafer with a sugar mama. Um, who cries all the time. And, crying all and the he time. doesn't catch rabbits. So, I mean, that makes a lot more sense being sung by a woman accusing a man of treating her that way. Mm-hmm. But it's totally like a gender flip-flop with Elvis singing it, but we still attribute it to him just because he was such a flamboyant, meaningful personality during that time. Totally. So in terms of your original question, which is, can we even separate something like this from the king, from our image of Elvis. I think one way to do that is to look at the source material, listening to Willie Mae Thornton's version of Hound Dog and appreciating it on a lyrical level, on perhaps even, I mean, new critics wouldn't be totally into this, but I think that it would be helpful for us at least to distance ourselves from the Elvis associations, uh, listening to it as her original song, Billy Mae Thornton, as a black woman recording in the early 50s and, and the implications of her as as the artist as opposed to Elvis, um, mm-hmm. that can help us get some psychological distance from that uh, that that Elvis connotation that we have with this song. Um, and this is an instance. I have a lot. I have a lot of negative things to say about new criticism because uh, I think it ends up falling apart when we adhere to it too closely. But I think that this is one of the really really beneficial things to new criticism is the fact that it encourages us to distance the work from the artist. 
Uh, I think sometimes context can be helpful and we can get a more profound understanding of the text, but I think that it also, uh, from, from a purely artistic appreciation standpoint, lets the artist get away with too much. When somebody like The King makes a new song back then, you give it the benefit of the doubt. Right. You're like, oh, it's good because it's an Elvis song. And that kind of lets, and the same applies to contemporary artists, but it lets famous artists or authors or creators kind of rest on their laurels and reap the benefits of name recognition without really backing it up or or bringing it every time. So we kind of let drivel and crap go through and we're like, oh, you know, it's it's great. Obviously, it's a Jay-Z song. As opposed to looking into whether it is still a good song without the Jay-Z name backing it up. Does that make sense? Totally, yeah. So I I have some of my own ideas, but do you have any ideas of if we totally separated Elvis from the song, why this song is good, quote-unquote? Well, to do the uh, tension and resolution approach, the, the kind of scientific, new critical approach to the lyrics – um, I, I think that it shows tension and resolution in a way that would be satisfying to the new critics' standards for what is good literature. I see tension in what the hound dog says he can do, or purports to do, or just by his nature is supposed to be able to do. You know, he 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 has a function as this not just companion animal, but functional being, and that is in tension with what he actually does. He never catches a rabbit. He's always just crying. He's not fulfilling his purpose. And that desire on the speaker's part of having a good hound dog, or <laughs> in this case, a, a mate, you know, somebody who's pulling their weight and doing what they're supposed to do, is in tension with what they're actually doing and, and how this relationship is actually panning out. And then I think we get resolution at the end, just implied, that they're breaking up, that they're done, that that they don't want to be together anymore, that Really, May Thornton wants to part ways with this hound dog man that's no good. Um, so we get some catharsis and resolution at the end. And, and I think just strictly from a tension resolution literary perspective, it, it satisfies some requirements of the new critics for a, a good piece of work. It's interesting and satisfying. Okay, cool. What do you think? What do you think that from scratch, this would be an enjoyable song? Yes. I think that just to keep it short and sweet. I think I like the repetition. It's a very simple song. It just says the same thing over and over and over. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. There is a theme of getting revenge on someone who's wronged you. And also, I really like the randomness of the rabbit part. Like, <laughs> it's just, it's just, you ain't never caught a rabbit. You're just a piece of shit. What about that rabbit <laughs> shit we were talking about? That was in our prenup. Okay, um, so... So I want to quickly discuss what makes something a good 50s song, and do you think that those standards still hold true today? I think that the new new critics say yes, because it's just in the text, those standards would still hold true, hold true today. But do you think that one of these songs would top the Billboard 100 today? Like, do you think that Hound Dog would be atop the Billboard 100 today? Um... No, I don't think so. And I think that some of that has to do with recording quality. Like it, it, it's not produced as well. It has good, oh, sure. it has good music, but I mean, the new critics would say that, you know, that doesn't matter. You, you can't, you can't defend that by saying, oh, you know, think of the time and they didn't, they, they didn't have technology that was up to the standards. It's, it has to stand alone. And I don't think it does. 
from a lyrical perspective, I also don't think so. It's super simple. It's very straightforward. It's very repetitive. And I think that the only way that you can get away with that nowadays is with kind of EDM infused pop music, like <laughs> chain smokers kind of music, where, where a lot of the heavy lifting is done by uh, a, a musical component especially an electronic music component. And then you can get away with, don't let me down, don't let me down, don't let me down, saying the same thing over and over. But for the most part, I feel like, uh, especially in rap songs, it's very lyric-heavy and lyric-dense in a way that 50 songs generally aren't. They're generally very repetitive and basic. Is that fair? Totally. No, I, I agree. I don't think that it would top the Billboard 100 today. And I think, to me, that's a lot of it is because... This music was so good, like Elvis was so good, quote unquote, because it was revolutionary. It it completely changed the history of music up until that point in time. Um, it was very different from anything else that anyone had heard in the 50s. And I don't think that the same songs today would have the same impact, but an equivalent break with tradition and with conventions might. And just to be clear, we're not saying that Elvis was necessarily the revolutionary, but the whole no. rock and roll movement in general. Right. And he was kind of the... Poster boy? The post... Yeah, poster boy for for that revolution. I think, I think that it would have been completely different if Elvis were a woman or a person of color. And we kind of see that in, um, in the history behind those songs. Um, y'all should watch the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom because it's really great. Anyway, that's um, random, but... I haven't seen that. I'll have to check it out. Highly recommend it. But I do think that that break from tradition was very significant at the time, and it would be today, even if it wasn't the same kind of break. Does that make sense? Sure, yeah. We're looking for innovation and cutting edge and boundary pushing. Yes. Anything that the old fogies are going to say is corrupting the youth, <laughs> that's what's going to get airplay and attention. That's what I think, personally. Sure. All right, let's move on from that. Okay. Okay, cool. Let's um, let's get into some of the nitty gritty. Um, before you mentioned all of the rhetorical devices that are used to an- analyze texts in New Criticism, mm-hmm. so I thought we would start out with that imagery and symbolism piece. So, where do you personally see evidence of imagery and symbolism in music from the fifties? Maybe in one particular song. You're going to make me narrow it down to one song, Bailey. One song. You get one song. All right. Well, one song that leaps to mind would be Blueberry Hill by Fats Domino. Blueberry Hill. That's fun. We're going to be giving some very quick recaps of most of these songs, which I would just like to say goes totally against the values of new criticism. Uh, Cleanth Brooks was one of the founding new critics, and he wrote a piece in a book called The Well-Wrought Urn called The Heresy of Paraphrase, where he goes on and on about how paraphrasing a work totally misses the point. You're, you you might as well just not even bother if you're going to narrow it down to a paraphrase. You have to see the work in its full original context in order to dig deep and do your close reading, and all of that just falls apart if you start doing these broad generalizations. But we don't have time to play the full song for everybody, so we're just going to have to be heretics for the time being. Blueberry Hill is about reminiscing on a time when 
the singer was with their lover uh, on top of Blueberry Hill, and uh, they were professing their love, and it was this wonderful, meaningful, romantic moment that wasn't to last, uh, that ended up falling apart. The, the vows were broken. They they drifted their separate ways, uh, but they still have this, or at least the singer still has this, memory of that time on Blueberry Hill. I found my thrill So in terms of symbolism, I think that Blueberry Hill itself, especially now that this song has gained so much notoriety and it was so popular in the 50s, it was recorded in 56, um, has come to stand for the brief, thrilling passion of young love or or a new love uh, and its ultimate brevity, uh, that that it's not to last. Um, So Blueberry Hill itself has become that symbol. Uh, kind of like Strawberry Fields Forever for another <laughs> fruit-based location. Uh, symbolizes, has, has, has taken on the weight of a distinct emotional concept. The, the childish exuberance and, and carefree experience of childhood in the Beatles example. But yeah, what do you think, Bailey? Oh, I also, I, I just want to slip in here that uh, Vladimir Putin does a truly terrifying cover <laughs> of Blueberry Hill. You can find it on YouTube and uh, lose three minutes of your life if you're so inclined. Um, yes, I agree. I think that in that song, the symbolism is a place or a, like, a location as a placeholder for a relationship. Um, that place kind of represents everything that they had together. And when they leave that place, it's over, right? Mm-hmm. So in the new critics terms, it is effective symbolic imagery and the sun has set on that moment okay so my song also has blue in the title but i'm talking about blue suede shoes don't by, step on them by carl perkins and i think to me personally i'm just making things up but but i imagine that the blue suede shoes are a symbol for purity and personal autonomy hmm. so just, just hear me out for okay. a second so I think the song is kind of about setting boundaries. He says, you can knock me down, step in my face, slander my name all over the place, uh, do anything that you want to, but lay off my blue suede shoes. So just as long as you don't touch my blue suede shoes, he's like, he's telling you what you can do and where his boundaries are. And so I kind of like the bodily autonomy metaphor to go along with that song. I'm not sure what the the blue significance in both of those songs is, but that's a a topic for another day. Interesting. I like that. I was a little bit dubious when you first started saying, well, personally, for me, this is what I think, because the new critics would say, who gives a shit, you know, like stick with the lyrics. But I think that that interpretation is very founded in the lyrics, the statements about step in my face, slander my name, uh, do anything that you want to me. I, I think I think that those very much point to bodily autonomy and uh, personal space. Yeah. I, I, I think your interpretation is justified by the lyrics, and the new critics would be proud. Well, thank you. Um, all right. Well, you were kind of talking about, when you were talking about Blueberry Hill, you kind of mentioned the way that paraphrase is taken in New Criticism. And I kind of wanted to, to move on in that direction and talk about organic unity, which... So, basically... 
organic unity is where all the parts of a song work together to make something great as a whole. And you can't really take just individual parts. You kind of have to take it all together. Hmm. But you can analyze all the different parts, right? Sure. So just just another example of why paraphrasing inevitably loses the, the spirit of a work. Yes. Okay. So what, what parts of the song make it what it is. Uh, okay, so I kind of want to just talk about what parts make the song what it is. So I thought that we could use the song 16 Tons by Tennessee Ernie Ford. Not originally, but he did Not the, originally. the popular cover. <laughs> so this song is, is really important to me because, as I mentioned before, my dad was very into this song and he would sing it to my sister and I a lot. So the song 16 Tons, if you're not familiar with it, it's telling a story and it juxtaposes the toughness of the life of a coal miner and the futility of the work that they do. So they talk about being deeper in debt. They say, I owe my soul to the company store. I love this song so much. Can we listen to a little sample right here real quick? Absolutely. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. So yeah, he says, another day older and deeper in debt, etc. So he doesn't even have the luxury of death because he's poor. But his body is also glorified in the song. And the pain of the song is that the listener knows that this this coal miner has done this since the day he was born. Um, he said, I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine. I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine, like right when, uh, when he was born. So there's really no end in sight because St. Peter can't even take him because he owes his soul to the company store, right? Uh-huh. It's, it's just an endless sea of misery for this coal miner. And in that situational irony of that pain... Um, I think we kind of get the organic unity. So that just juxtaposition of their strength and their ability to beat people up, he says... Fighting and trouble are my middle name. Yep, he, he's he's bad news. He can beat you up if he needs to. So he's really strong, and that's a really beautiful image. But also, the work that he does just cripples him completely. That's how I see organic unity in that song. Interesting. I like that. So overall, we couldn't, or we would be, we would be missing something fundamental to the success of this song. Were we to just be like, oh, it's about this guy who works so hard, uh, but he keeps getting into debt with the company store at the mine, uh, to the point where he couldn't even die because he wouldn't be able to pay off his debts. He's just trapped in this. We, we lose so much depth and flavor and meaning of the song if we reduce it to that rather than listening to it in, in its entirety. Exactly. Yes, it all comes together to make a really, truly beautiful song. Cool. Um, there was something that I wanted to talk about with 16 Tons. Please. Uh, there's a term in New Criticism called the Objective Correlative, which was popularized by the poet T.S. Eliot. Essentially, it refers to the way in which an emotional experience is conveyed through a very specific and exact sequence of images. So the idea is that we need this sequence in order to evoke emotion because it does it so much more powerfully and effectively than just a lecture would. 
by explaining I want you to feel these emotions. It's going to be hollow and intellectual instead of visceral. Instead, it's better, according to the New Critics, to combine imagery and and concepts in a, a perfectly particular way to evoke an emotional experience. And if you get the wrong emotional experience, or if it feels weak or heavy-handed, then uh, the, the the text is not as good. It's not that the author failed, we don't care about the author, but the text itself <laughs> is less good. Um, so something that I see in this song, uh, it is it is one of the most lyrically complex songs from the 50s that I came across. Totally. It, it's, it's got a lot going on, it has some really good imagery. Uh, I think it's very successful in a lot of ways. It shows the, uh, the, the back-breaking, futile labor that you were talking about, and the bleak landscape where the sun didn't shine and it was drizzling rain and everything is sooty and, and, and depressing. And it does a really good job using objects in a sequence to, to evoke uh, some emotion, but I feel like it falls short of really painting the experience of, of this guy's life as a coal miner. I feel like I, w- I would like some maybe imagery of the mine and, and what he, what he does and his, and, and the foreman on the crew and, uh, and, and, you know, his, his day to day grind. Maybe more examples of physical exhaustion. I mean, he kind of says that he's tired, I think, once, but it doesn't, it doesn't hit home. It's not really strong and, and viscerally penetrating. It, I, I don't feel his, I don't, I don't feel his emotions in a way that I could say that this satisfied an objective correlative. I feel like there would be a better way to evoke that, that he falls short of. And mm-hmm. by those, terms this song is not great it's good i really really enjoy it but on on a lyrical level in terms of its its ability to evoke what it intends to evoke i think it falls short from a new critical perspective did you feel fully satisfied with the concepts that were put forth in the song did you feel like you really embodied his pain and exhaustion and frustration or was it just kind of detached it was a little bit detached. I think it was very much aggressive in a way that, like, like pushing away pain by being tough and being like, I'll beat you up, yo. I agree with you. Anyway, that's how I feel. <laughs> and you should, too. I, I think you have some very great things to say. Thank you. Anytime. We're moving on. Moving on down the line. What you got, Bailey? Okay. So I mentioned some situational irony in 16 Tons, but I kind of want to go deeper into that irony part, and especially with the tension that you were mentioning before, how new criticism really focuses on tensions in songs. And so where do you see evidence of tension or paradox or irony in 50s songs, or an iconic 50s song? Yeah, I actually see some irony and... Maybe not paradox, but close to it. In Why Do Fools Fall in Love by Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers. I agree. You know this song? Yes. It's like we planned this or something. <laughs> Don't let them see behind the scenes, <laughs> Bailey. <laughs> We've never met each other before. No one will know. No. So this song is all about how love is a losing game. It's foolish. Uh, we We don't get anything really out of love. And only fools fall in love. But they do. They do fall in love, and they continue to do it. And by implication, the singer of the song is a fool, and that's where I see the irony. He falls in love. He finds himself falling in love. He recognizes that it's foolish, but he keeps falling into the same trap over and over. And the way that he sings it almost sounds 
like a love song. Oh. That's yeah, I agree. That's what I was gonna say too. Oh, we'll say um, some of it. Well, yeah, he um the main line in the chorus says, Why do the birds sing so gay? And he's talking about love as a pointless thing to do. Um, why do we put ourselves through it? Why, why, why? Um But the irony is that this song is where Frankie Lyman himself is singing so gay. Mm. Like he's sing- singing so happily, you know? That's true. And just like I it sounds like birds would be singing it because it's such a like beautiful and cheery song um so i I think that that is the inherent irony it's a very like happy days diner kind of song that Mm -hmm. you would hear so i think that the tension of the speaker's projection of his own hamartia his fatal flaw which is falling in love his own fatal flaw is that he sings gaily he falls in love. Um, so he kind of projects that onto the birds. And he's like, why do they do that? Like, why do I do this? That's what that's what I see in that tension. What about you? No, I see that exactly. It's, it's ironic and almost paradoxical that he would continue to call this behavior foolish, knowing that it's foolish, uh, seemingly through the lyrics to despise it, but through the way in which he's singing about it and, and his, his tone throughout the song. He's happily a part of that foolish ritual. He's repressing some ish. I don't know if he's even repressing it. He's acknowledging it, and he's just like, screw it. I'm going to continue to be foolish. I don't know why we're doing this, but let's do it. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that might be interesting to note for uh, New Criticism is that Frankie Lyman was 13 when he wrote this song, uh, which the New Critics don't think matters at all. But I think that's really interesting that he's singing crazy. about love from a such a delusion, disillusioned world-weary, broken-hearted <laughs> perspective of a 13-year-old. Poor kid. Poor kid. But the new critics don't care. They say that this is just a grown-ass man or woman or robot or gay bird singing about love. <laughs> Those birds are just too gay. They are just the right amount of gay, Bailey, but they are still foolishly in love. <laughs> Aren't we all? Okay. Tweet, tweet. <laughs> tweet, tweet. <laughs> all right. All right, let's blast through the rest of this. What else are we going to be talking about? Okay, so kind of similar to the tensions, where do you see contradictions within these songs, and how do you see them being resolved? Mm, well, now that you mention it, one of We're my favorite <laughs> Spanish language 50s songs, <laughs> Que Sera Sera by Doris Day, uh, has some contradictory messaging in it. Que Sera Sera. Bailey is 34% fluent in Spanish, according to Duolingo, <laughs> so she's going to provide the translation. <laughs> Whatever will be, will be. Beautiful. Thank you. So the song is centered around anxiety about the future, or hopes and expectations. The singer asks her mother, Will I be pretty? Will I be rich? And her mother responds by just saying that, the future is unpredictable. We don't have a way to control it. Whatever will be, will be. You have to give up any illusion of self-actualization and just let the world happen to you. Which Destiny. Or destiny. Which seems to be a tension or a contradiction in the values of the song. You know, the, the singer talking to her mother wants to be pretty and rich and, and lead right, a good life yeah. and have a strong future. And her mother is saying, no, you can't control that. Forget about it. Give up that illusion of control. Yeah. Um, She's saying, just don't worry, but every verse is pretty much worrying. Mm-hmm. And so those seem 
to be in conflict with each other. But I think that the song reaches a resolution through its tone. Just like with Why Do Fools Fall in Love, the tone kind of undermines the message. I think the tone in in this song reinforces a resolution that you can find in those contradictory values by being reaffirming and reassuring and comforting. It sounds like a lullaby, like something that you would sing to comfort your child to sleep. Like a mantra. Exactly. It's yeah. it's calming. It's empowering by saying you don't have to worry about this kind of stuff. And I think that that finds a, a logical resolution to this conflict and also a, an emotional comfort. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, I think it's kind of resolved at the end, right? Like, What are the final lines? So it's the speaker. We find out eventually that the speaker has a sweetheart and they have children of their own. Mm -hmm. And um, things turn out okay for them. And then they end up saying that same thing to their kids, right? (laughs) I guess so, yeah. They say, "My, my children ask me, will I be handsome? Will I be rich? And I just say, hey... We'll see. Whatever will be, will be. Right. So, so you the might speaker, not. You might not end up as lucky as I did. So the speaker comes full circle uh, and kind of proving the Kesarasra mindset. But is it is it just because the speaker can look back on it that they can that she can like that she can say all of that and be like, oh, my life turned out okay, so I can start saying Kesarasra also. Maybe I think it also has to do with the fact that like she did end up pretty and rich and she got the future that she was right exactly because i mean if she had ended up poor and ugly and then her kids are saying will i be handsome and rich in the future she'll she would probably be a little bit more harsh and realistic and be like no right so being able to have that distance is is what makes it okay to say whatever will be will be so it's kind of a false resolution maybe i don't know that's how i perceive it okay a couple of options here i like it that makes this a good song that's what the new critics would say. To give the new critics some credit, uh, I, I don't think that they just are saying there's one mathematical solution to tell if a song is good or right, bad. Right, right. I think that there are a lot of different ways to value a song, but there's a method, a tried and true method to go about determining whether or not it's a good song. But there could be many different interpretations within that and many different layers to it that make it a good song and might even make it a better song because it has so much potential and value. Like this one, Way to Go, Doris Day. Right. No, I agree. Um, Let's talk about not just the lyrics of the songs, but also the forms, the rhymes, the rhythms. What do you think that those say about the content of the songs? So to kind of give a, a background on this, I think that 50 songs in general seem to mostly, on the whole, be pleasant, snappy, upbeat, fun. Mm -hmm. They have cheery content for the most part. Do you think that that is a, this is not a very very new criticism thing, but like, is that a sign of the times? Is it part of the zeitgeist of the 50s? Should we not think that? Should we not think about it? Should we put that out of our minds? That's kind of where I'm coming at it from. Hmm. I think it's interesting to take stock of those repeated patterns and, and similarities within 50s music, if for no other reason than to see how and why songs that broke that mold were successful. Sure. Like, because it was the the silent generation, they were happy that things were peaceful after the war. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's that was a product. Sure. And I think it gives us a glimpse into the general psyche of people during that time, not just because totally. these are the people who are making this kind of 
happy, poppy, fun, pseudo-rebellious, but still kind of clean-cut, all-American music. Mm -hmm. Not just because those are the people who are making this music, but those are the people who are buying it. Those are the people who are getting so wrapped up in this rock and roll craze. I, I think it's valuable from a from an anthropological or a sociological perspective, just to see how how people were responding and living their lives back then. I don't know. How about you? What do you think? I agree. Good. <laughs> uh, one other thing that I noticed consistently throughout fifties music was this kind of fascination with almost scatting, just goofy word sounds. Uh, let me let me play a little montage that I put together for the occasion. Oh, I'm so excited. That was, in order, Witch Doctor by David Seville, A Bushel and a Peck by the Andrews Sisters, and Tutti Frutti by Little Richard. Tutti Frutti. Mm -hmm. um, David Seville was actually the voice of the Chipmunks, which became Alvin and the Chipmunks. Mm -hmm. uh, you might you might notice that sound, uh, him being sped up. Uh, and I've actually been noticing a lot of resurgence of that style uh, in modern music. Uh, just earlier today, Bailey, we heard that new Imagine Dragons song, Thunder. Oh, yeah. And that has that sped up, high-pitched, almost chipmunk quality. Um, and then I also remember from the early 2000s, Lonely by Akon. I'm, I'm so lonely. <laughs> uh, so whatever that means, but <laughs> yeah, the the song Witch Doctor is really interesting because it doesn't say much at all. It's it's pretty much just like it's fun and it's mouth sounds mm -hmm. that they make mm -hmm. the ooh ee ooh ah all of that. Um, the form doesn't really take much either. It's just sped up voices. It's not anything fancy. It's not any big production. Um, probably like one guy with a microphone and then he just speeds it up. Um, but it was popular and it was neat. It was innovating oh, yeah. the techniques available at the time, which was also something I wanted to mention about form and uh, uniqueness in, in the fifties is this is when electric guitar really started to be oh, interesting. Uh, incorporated into popular music. Uh, Les Paul was alive and making music during this time. And um, the electric guitar really got its start in the late forties, early fifties. Cool. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention um, about the Bushel and a Peck song, which is also a very, very important song to me. My my little old grandma, uh, who <laughs> is no longer around, oh, she uh, <laughs> she was great, but she was very into that song. She would say, "I love you, a Bushel and a Peck." It was very cute. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's it's a very pleasant, sweet song about feeling lots and lots of love for someone. The form, the rhymes, the rhythms, they are fast, composed, um, concise, and just very loving in general. And I think that the the emotions of the content come out in the form. Mm -hmm. So that's all I wanted to say about that. But I just like that song a lot. Groovy. Oh, wait. That's 60s. Um, yeah, no. Swell? Thumbs up. I don't know. Maybe you just say, sit on it, Potsy. Yeah, that's what they said in the 50s. All right. Should we start wrapping things up, Bailey? Yeah, I wanted to kind of finish up by maybe each of us choosing a passage from a song that stands for the entirety of, of either that song or of the 50s in general. Okay. Um, I think that's a very new criticism thing to do. 
So I personally chose the first verse of Manish Boy by Money Waters. Tell me so, about it. I love that song. <laughs> now when I was a young boy, at the age of five, my mother said I gonna be the greatest man alive. So it's a very iconic verse, right? Whenever we think of, like, the blues, that's kind of the harmonica noises that we think of, right? The do-do-do-do-do. Absolutely. And that was, as much as I love Muddy Waters, pretty much all of his songs sound like that. They've got that, oh, really? that rolling, repeated, it's very simple. It's very plain. And it really says what it is. It's not pretending to be anything else. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, I'm a mannish boy. <laughs> uh, it's also really fun. And, and it's, it's like a lot of these songs. It's fun. And it's in the same blues style. And I just... It just makes me smile listening to it. So I thought that that was very indicative of the time period. And I thought it was also very ahead of its time uh, because he added a little spelling lesson in there <laughs> and taught us how to spell M-A-N. Just like Fergie. B-O-Y. Oh, I was going to say just like uh, Gwen Stefani before she taught oh. us how to spell bananas. Banana, nana. <laughs> Good one. Thank Good you. Good one. Thank I you. like it. <laughs> um, what did Fergie teach us how to spell? Everything she always spells G L A M. And she taught us the definition of Fergalicious. Mm-hmm. It makes the boys go loco. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for setting the groundwork for that, Muddy Waters. So yeah, I really feel as though this particular verse is very indicative of the time period and of Muddy Waters in general. Do you have a particular passage that stood out to you as a signpost? Of 50s music? Yes. Yeah. Um, the song, in parentheses, We're Gonna, in parentheses, Rock Around the <laughs> Clock by Bill Haley and his Comets. Oh, I love that song. I do too. Did you watch Happy Days? I never watched Happy Days, no. Oh, it was the theme song for a while. Really? It was. That's interesting. I'll have to give it a shot. Yeah. <sighs> You've got quite a Netflix queue going for me here, Bailey. This I don't think Happy Days is on Netflix. 24 Steps from Stardom. To watch TV Land for that. But, uh... Happy Days it was a great show, and you I can't believe you never watched it when you were a kid. Someday. That's what Sidonet Pati is from, also, if you didn't get that ref. Anyway, Rock Around <laughs> the Clock is about a group of like-minded young people <laughs> rocking out all day long, all around the clock. Till broad daylight. Yep. Um, so it's, I think, very representative of that repetitive and simple structure that was very popular in the 50s with the the uh, lyrical structures uh, and and the music. Uh, it's calling out rock and roll by name. It's very self-referential uh, and calls out the interests and the fads of the decade. Uh, it's all about staying up all night and continuing to dance and be part of this rock and roll phenomenon that was seen as corrupting the youth. So it embodies a spirit of rebelliousness. And all of that together, I think, is very iconically... 50s. I think this this song totally. would stand as a good monolith to the 50s. I know when you pick when you think of it, you picture Arthur Fonzarelli, probably. Yeah, from all of my Happy Days experience, I picture like poodle skirts and sock hops and stuff. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. That too. Um, also, I like the fact that they use the term "good rags." Put on your good rags and <laughs> let's go dancing. Why not? I like it. So real quick before we go, do you want to just talk about what we think personally about new criticism? Because I see a lot of problems in it. 
I do too. I think its heart is in the right place, and I think there's a lot to be gained from some of the tenets of new criticism, like we were talking about at the beginning, with is it possible to and should we separate Elvis's work from his image as the king? I right. Think, I think that sometimes the contextual baggage that a song is bringing with it, uh, or, or any piece of work, ends up undermining or uh, giving a pass to or in, in some way compromising the literary integrity of it. An example of this might be, you know, a, a Michael Jackson song, and can we still listen to it the same as if he hadn't had all of the sex abuse allegations? allegations. Um, or a Bill Cosby comedy CD, you know, like, can we hmm. listen to the work itself, just look at the text and separate it from the context, from the author, from anything else that might compromise the value that it holds internally? And I would say that that's very helpful, at least from an exercise level, uh, at least to question, you know, where we put value and weight in things. And, and it can help give us distance from sometimes unsavory connotations uh, that that have become intertwined with pieces of literature, whether they're songs or books or movies. But I also think that it should just be one of many tools that you have in mm. your critical toolbox. Totally. Uh, if if you are just a new critic and you're just looking at pieces of work for what they are literally on the page, I think you're going to be missing a ton of really important information. You're going to fall short of being able to apply it to your experience of life and the context that you're living in and how have things changed or how have things stayed the same and how can I build off of this? Um, one of my friends just showed me Psycho for the first time a couple of weeks ago. The first time. That was the first time that I'd seen it. Crazy. And I feel like there was a lot of value in viewing it as a revolutionary film. Right. Uh, so many of the the camera angles and directorial choices and and really cool aspects of the film are commonplace nowadays. And so it would be very easy to just be like, oh yeah, it's a, you know, a kind of okay film by today's standards. But I think there's a lot to be learned in looking at it as innovative and uh, groundbreaking at the time, because that shows us what we can do to innovate and break ground now. I agree. I think that that's kind of what I've been hearing in regards to like Wonder Woman, the new Wonder Woman movie, um, people are saying, "Oh, it's just the same like superhero tropes, tropes that we've always seen. Why, why is this any better?" Like, and yeah, it is the same. That was me saying that. That, that was you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is the same for you, but you have to understand the context that it is coming into the world um, and the people it is representing. That's fair, actually. Yeah. Uh, uh- a new critic might look at it and say the balance of tension and resolution or the the symbolism and paradox and irony and all of these literary devices are kind of bland. They're not, they're not anything impressive mm-hmm. uh, on their own. But when you look at it at the context of there haven't really been any successful uh, female lead superhero movies also directed by a woman, those, those facts add a lot of valuable cultural context that I feel have bearing on whether or not it's a good movie. Is that fair? Yes. All right. I think that new criticism is is good to consider. It's I like close readings. I like that anyone can do it, that really your interpretation is good as long as you have a reason behind it. Um, I, I like all that, but I do think it's limited. All right. Well, that's why we look at so many different literary criticism theories. 
That's what we're all about. We're bringing them to you live. All right. Well, if you want to follow us, please check us out on Facebook. Um, check us out on SoundCloud or um, or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Twitter at Track Talk Show. You can email us at tracktalkshow at gmail.com. Let us know what you want to see in the 60s or 70s episodes. And um, if you have any suggestions for songs, we would love to hear that. Um, and if you get a chance, please review us on iTunes. It would be really, really helpful for us if you enjoyed this. Yes, please. Uh, to some of our older listeners, if you have memories and experiences of having gone to concerts or listened to music during the 60s and 70s, and you would be interested in sharing some of those experiences with us. We tried to get somebody to talk about their experience with 50s music, and that kind of fell through. Mm -hmm. But maybe we could get you on the show. We would love to hear some perspectives of people who are really around. So um, let us know. Feel free to email us um, or record your voice. Thank you. As always, thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week, and we will see you next Tuesday. Bye. You load 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and a deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me cause I can go. I owe my soul to the company store. That was awful, wasn't it?